Galatians 1, title of the sermon, Trust the Gospel. We're actually finishing the, the, the chapter. Uh, Galatians has some solid elements of narrative, so we might actually move through it a little bit faster than a typical epistle where there's a bit more doctrine, uh, a little less narrative, and we'll see some of that this evening. Last week, we talked about what the gospel is, the simple gospel. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. He was buried and rose again the third day according to the scriptures. We emphasized the simplicity. We emphasized the clarity and that in addition, any addition or any subtraction to the message of the gospel is met in scriptures with tremendous severity, uh, spiritual censor. Paul literally says, if any man preaches anything other than the gospel which you've been given, let him be accursed, anathema, cut off from the body of Christ. Now, the next question we must ask, or we we might ask, as we think about this idea of changing the gospel, perverting the gospel, uh, another gospel, is why would men, what would motivate men to change the gospel? And we might think of some basic ones, you know, things such as um, you think of televangelists and their desire to change the gospel because it gets them money, and you think of these sorts of things. But when you think of a man that maybe even is being genuine, honest, He's, he's got n- not necessarily deeply malicious intent. What would motivate somebody to alter their understanding of the gospel of Jesus Christ or alter their presentation of the gospel of Jesus Christ? Why would men feel compelled, whether in that context, genuine, or in the malicious context, why would men feel compelled to alter the gospel? And Paul is going to talk about that a little bit today as he defends himself. He's defending why he's telling this church, I did not. He says, it's not me that's perverting the gospel. It's not me that has altered the gospel. And he's going to give some proofs from his life that reflect the genuineness, that reflect uh, the fruit of a genuine gospel which he is presenting. And as he does so, we're going to learn that just as we as individuals must learn how to trust the gospel for what it is in our own lives. In other words, if you're going to accept the gospel of Jesus Christ, you have to learn to trust it. You have to learn to trust that indeed Christ did die for your sin and you don't have to earn your way to Him. You have to trust that He has done, that what He has done is sufficient for you regardless of what you have done. And just as you have to trust the gospel in your own heart and life, in order to accept and receive the gospel, so too then after we accept the gospel, we have to trust the gospel as we declare it to others. And you know, sometimes it can be easier for us to trust the gospel as to how God has, what God has done for us than it is to trust that the gospel is sufficient as we seek to give it to others. Say, Pastor, what do you mean by that? Well, we'll talk about it tonight. Paul's going to immediately initiate his statement as to why any change to the gospel is unnecessary and wrong. Notice what he says in Galatians chapter 1, verse 10. He says, For do I now persuade men or God? Or do I seek to please men? For if I yet pleased men, I should not be the servant of Christ. Is the gospel about me persuading men? Paul asks. Or is it about God persuading men? Is the gospel about me pleasing men? Or is the gospel about me serving God? 
And the answer to these questions is quite clear. My responsibility is not to persuade people to accept the gospel. My responsibility is to declare the gospel. My responsibility is not to please people with my gospel presentation. My responsibility is to please God or serve God with my gospel presentation. And can you see how if I don't have a firm grasp upon my role in the gospel, it could be easy for me to justify changing its message? One of the most important truths concerning God's commission given unto us as believers to share the gospel is that it is not our job to convince people of anything. That's God's job. We're asked to be faithful messengers in word and in deed and then asked to leave the results to God. Jesus told his disciples in John 16, 7 and 8, I, I quote it often. He says, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is expedient for you that I go away. For if I go not away, the Comforter will not come unto you. But if I depart, I will send him unto you. And when he is come, he will reprove the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. Jesus promised to his disciples that he himself would send the Comforter, the one that we know to be called the Holy Spirit, and when he sends the Holy Spirit, that this Holy Spirit would be working in the hearts of the world to understand the gospel. And the idea here is that we don't need to change our message to make it alluring. We don't need to trick people into accepting the gospel. We don't need to manipulate people into accepting the gospel. We don't need to work people into an emotional fervor in order to get them to accept the gospel. That our job is to give the gospel of Jesus Christ, to declare the gospel of Jesus Christ, and as we declare it, then we get to trust God to be working in the hearts of men. God is doing what is necessary to reveal Himself in each man, and He is pleased to use you and to use me as tools with which He does His work. But He never asks us to branch out on our own, to go into business for ourselves only to be his mouthpiece. Regularly at the jail when I'm telling people the gospel, um, it may be that one of the people starts looking at me and, and gives me this look that says, I don't really th think I like what you're telling me. Or maybe um, it's a person who um, is on the fence and, and he's trying to decide whether or not he's actually interested. I was talking to a guy a couple of weeks ago and was telling him the gospel and I, I gave him the presentation and... I asked him if, if he had ever truly accepted Christ as his Savior, if he'd ever truly become a follower of Jesus Christ, and he said no, and then you could see his wheels turning, and it's like something clicked in him, and he started self-justifying himself. And he started saying, well, but there was this time where I had this experience, and well, uh, but I'm so much better than the other guys in my neighborhood. Well, but I'm trying to, to turn my life around as if some of those things were indications that he had accepted Christ. And, and it is in many of those times that what I tell people is this. I say, look, I'm not here to twist your arm. I'm not here to try to emotionally or, or spiritually manipulate you. I'm not here to, to try to get you to do anything. I'm here as kind of that blinking neon sign that says, look to Him, look to Him. I'm here simply to be an arrow pointing 
you to Christ. And what you do with what I've given you is absolutely your business. It's my job to tell you what you need to know. It's your job to do something with it. And that is where we need to be as presenters of the gospel of Jesus Christ. God specifically told his Old Testament prophets that they would speak nothing in God's name that God did not explicitly tell them. In fact, if they said something in God's name that God did not give them, they were potentially going to be killed. So strong was this commission that in the case of one of his prophets, a man named Ezekiel, God actually did not allow him to speak. He cut off Ezekiel's ability to speak except when God had a message to speak through him. And for years and years, Ezekiel lost his capacity to speak except when God had a message. Because God wanted everyone around him to know that when this man opened his mouth, he opened his mouth because he had a message directly from God to the people. And as we present the gospel of Jesus Christ, that is our commission. Our commission is not to go out and say whatever we want to say. It's to be a shining light. It's to express the gospel into the ears of the hearers. Now, Uh, His Word is our manual. It tells us what we need to know and it teaches us how to tell others what they need to know. That doesn't mean we can't get creative with our presentation of the Gospel. It doesn't mean we can't come at uh, our presentation from different angles and use different mediums with which to present the Gospel. But the message, we have absolutely no wiggle room when it comes to what the message is, when it comes to the content of the Gospel. The content must remain pure. So we can be tempted to change the gospel in order to persuade men, in order to get them to accept our message where they may not otherwise, to try to emotionally manipulate them, to try to guilt them into accepting the gospel, to try to uh, manipulate them into accepting the gospel. We can, that can be one of the ways that we might change the message. In Paul's second question, however, he says, first, do I now persuade men or or God? In other words, do I persuade men or does God persuade men? And we know that God is the persuader of men, not us. His second question reveals that not only can we change the gospel in order to persuade men, but we can also change the gospel in order to please men. The gospel is offensive to man's sensibilities. We all know that. The gospel tells us that we're sinners. Our spirits don't like to hear that we're sinners because we feel that we're pretty good people. The gospel tells us we can't earn our way to God. Our spirits don't like that because self-esteem and such. The gospel tells us that the only way to get to God is Christ and our spirits don't like that because that seems limiting, that seems unfair. And what this means is that an unregenerate mind and an unregenerate heart don't naturally want the gospel. It is not until the Holy Spirit accomplishes His work of conviction, of convincing men of sin and of righteousness and of judgment, what we learned about in John 16, 7 and 8. It is not until the Holy Spirit accomplishes that work that men realize the blessedness of the gospel And if they're willing, humble themselves to accept it. It is not until the conviction of God in the hearts of men show them their need before man says, wow, here's a God who sent His Son Jesus Christ to meet my need. 
And that's God's work. And if we want the unbelieving world to, in their natural state, love the gospel, then we're going to, by necessity, need to change the gospel in order for them to love it. And of course, in order to please men, the part of the gospel that must be changed, what, what part of the gospel do you think needs to be changed in order to please the natural mind of a man? Well, it's, it's really not a part of the gospel. It's a part of the, the conditions for the gospel, right? It's the sin part. It's the part that tells them that Jesus died for your sins. That's the part that has to be cut out. That's the part of 1 Corinthians 15 that Paul gave so clearly. 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4. Christ died for our sins. See, if you're going to make a gospel that pleases men, you're going to say, Christ died and rose again for you. And you're going to cut out that for our sins part because that's the part that's offensive. That's the part that nobody wants. People love the idea of, of Christ and of Him dying and of, of uh, as I'll, I put it, kind of Jesus becoming the divine Santa Claus, right? That exists to only give us good things and no conditions. He accepts us as we are and then He, he gives us all sorts of good things and... and um, He's this spiritual Santa Claus. And that's what happens if we take that sin part away. Instead of Him becoming the God-man who redeemed us from the very pit of our own sinful existence, He becomes spiritual Santa Claus. And while the Gospel is simple and the Gospel is clear, the Gospel, what it is not, it is not open to negotiation. And it's important to understand that even if we change the gospel, even if we change the message in order to persuade men or in order to please men, the conditions upon which the gospel is truly received do not, nor can they ever change. Several years ago, my wife and I were still in Florida and I was shopping at Home Depot one day and I saw this, this um, setup and the setup was for circular saw blades. And these circular saw blades were regularly somewhere like $30 for, for these, this set of blades. And they were marked down to $8. And there was a big sign that said, on sale $8. And it didn't say anything else. It just had all the blades and it said, on sale $8. And I thought, well, that's a deal I can't pass up. So I went ahead and picked up these circular saw blades and I took them to the cash register. And the lady rung them up at the cash register and they rang up as $30 plus tax. And I told her, I said, well, you've got a display over there. And in that display, it says that they're $8. So she went over there and she looked at that display and she came back and she said, well, you're absolutely right. But that display was not meant for those circular saw blades. These blades are not supposed to be on sale. She said, however, it's our mistake for mislabeling them. So I'm going to give you that price anyway. I thought, well, that's great. I should have bought a couple more packs. But I, I didn't say that. I just thought that. Um, but I went ahead and I got the blades and I left. Because of the mistake, the mislabeling of the product, I got the product for cheaper than I was supposed to. Because the product was mislabeled and it was human error, I became the beneficiary of the error in labeling. But you know, the gospel doesn't work that way. If we mislabel the gospel, if we mis communicate the gospel to someone, if we tell somebody that this is the gospel and what we give them is not what the Bible tells them, one day when they stand before God and they say, well, God, I, I, 
I heard this and this is what they told me got me to heaven and now I'm standing before you and it's not my fault they told me wrong. God is not going to give them a free pass. That's not how it works. If we mislabel the gospel, if we mispresent the gospel, if we change the gospel, God is not going to compensate before, when they stand before God one day, God is not going to say, well, because they misrepresented the gospel, you can come in. It was a misunderstanding. If we are mispresenting the gospel, then we are giving others a false gospel. Now, that's not to say, and let me just clarify here, that's not to say that God can't compensate for our error. In other words, send somebody else to give the true gospel, right? But as far as our gospel that we present, if we mispresent it, don't think that God's just going to let people in that accepted our false gospel because we mispresented it and they genuinely accepted our mispresentation. So we don't approach the gospel with the intent of persuading. We do the telling. God does the persuading. We don't approach the gospel with the intent of pleasing men. We do the telling. God's Holy Spirit brings them to a reality of their need. And Paul says in verses 11 and 12, he says, But I certify you, brethren, that the gospel which was preached of me is not after man, for I neither received it of man, neither was I taught it, but by the revelation of Jesus Christ. Paul certifies, he says, literally to make known. That word might be familiar to those of you that are here, have been here for a while on Tuesday nights, Gnorizo. He says, I make known to you, I certify to you, brethren. And he, he makes it clear to them that the gospel which he was preaching is not a gospel that's sourced in man or even received of man in any way. And he's mentioned this already. He mentioned this in his introduction. He said that he uh, was an apostle, not of men, neither by men, but by Jesus Christ. And now he says, the gospel which I'm preaching is not of men nor by men. Rather, Paul states, his gospel, the gospel which he teached, was a gospel that was taught him directly from the revelation of Jesus Christ. And Paul tells us what this means as he continues in the verses that follow. Verses 13 and 14, he says this, For ye have heard of my conversation, that word meaning behavior, you have heard of my conversation in time past in the Jews' religion, how that beyond measure I persecuted the church of God and wasted it and profited in the Jews' religion above many my equals in mine own nation, being more exceedingly zealous of the traditions of my fathers. Paul speaks of the time when he was still attached to Judaism. Now remember, the problem as we get through the book, this is why we do a book sermon first. The problem as we, we delve into this book will be a problem of, legali of living a legalistic life of Judaism, of Judaistic Christianity, a Christianity that is also compelled to follow the law as a condition of the Christian relationship with God. And so imagine how impacting this illustration would be for these churches in Galatia as Paul reminds them that he was a man of tremendous influence in Judaism before coming out of that particular religion. Paul describes for us the role that he had 
in the Jews' religion here in part, but also particularly in Philippians chapter 3, verses 5 and 6. Notice what he says here. He describes himself this way. He says, circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, and Hebrew of the Hebrews, as touching the law of Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, touching the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. This is Paul's spiritual re- or, uh, re- Jewish resume. Not really a spiritual resume. A, a Jewish resume. Circumcised the eighth day, exactly when he was supposed to be circumcised according to the law. He was a, uh, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, one of the twelve tribes. He's certifiably of a tribe. He, he can trace his roots back to a tribe in Israel. He was a Pharisee. And that would have been one of the, the particular sects and the sect of Judaism that was most concerned with keeping the law of God. He was deeply, deeply zealous for the law. He says concerning zeal, how zealous was he? Well, he was a persecutor of the church. That's how zealous he was for the Jews' religion. He, when, when the church began to rise up, he persecuted them. As a matter of fact, if you recall, the first Christian martyr was a man named Stephen. And as Stephen was being stoned, those that stoned him laid their garments at the feet of a man. And that man's name was Saul. Saul of Tarsus. Paul. It was under Paul's zeal and authority that the very first martyr in the church died. And Paul became a terror to the church. We'll see that in just a moment. And then he says, as far as the righteousness which can be found by keeping the law, he said, whatever bit of righteousness is found in keeping the law, he says, I was blameless. I was blameless. I did everything to a T. That's Paul's resume. And Paul, as he writes to these Galatian believers, these Galatian believers that were trying their best to live under the law, even the Judaizers who were teaching this stuff, even the ones who were trying to compel these Galatian believers to teach the law, would have paled in comparison to Paul's resume in the Jews' religion. He was... Pharisee of the Pharisees. He had an authority to speak on this issue that perhaps no one else in Christianity had at this time. And so Paul says in Galatians 1 that he wasted the church of God. That word waste literally means to ravage, exceedingly hostile to the church. And he was very, very good at what he did. The church was terrified of him. He was a force to be reckoned with against them. When he would come to a city, the church would hide. They were absolutely terrified of this man. To this end, Paul said that he profited in the Jews' religion above many his own equals. Many others who were Pharisees at the time, many others who were rising in the ranks at that time, he said, I profited above most of them. He said, I was better at this keeping of the law, at being zealous for the Jews' religion. I was better than most of those other ones that were trying as well. He had a greater reputation. He had greater respect. And most likely, he was also profiting monetarily greater than others that were making attempts at being zealous for the law. And the point of all of this, the point of these two verses, the point of Paul saying this, 
is that the Galatian believers would understand that if salvation came through the law, that if the law was supposed to be connected to the gospel, that Paul would have had no reason to separate himself from his past. That he would have had no reason to remove himself from the legalistic expectations of the Jews' religion if, if that was legitimate, if it was a legitimate part of the gospel. But he didn't stay connected to the Jews' religion because something happened to him. And we see that in verses 15 and 16. He says, But when it pleased God, who separated me from my mother's womb and called me by His grace to reveal His Son in me, that I might preach Him among the heathen, He says, Immediately I conferred not with flesh and blood. Continue in verse 17. Neither went I up to Jerusalem to them which were apostles before me, but I went into Arabia and returned again unto Damascus. So Paul says that God, the one who created him, called him by revealing the truth of Jesus' Messiahship to him and commissioned him with a particular task, and that is that he would preach Jesus to the Gentile world. We read of this call in Acts chapter 9, where the Scriptures tell us that Paul, in that passage he is known as Saul, had been sent by the high priest to Damascus with letters authorizing the capture and then the extradition of all Christians to Jerusalem for trial. So Paul's purpose in going to Damascus was to find, was to root out Christians and was to then capture them and to, ex, uh, to uh, extradite them to Jerusalem so that the Sanhedrin council could try them for offenses against Judaism. And we'll pick up this context. I'll invite you, if you want, you can turn to Acts chapter 9 or you can just read it on the screen. We'll pick up the context in Acts 9 verse 3. And the scriptures tells us this. And as he, that would be Saul, journeyed, he came near Damascus. And suddenly there shined round about him a light from heaven. And he fell to the earth and heard a voice saying unto him, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? And he, that Saul, said, Who art thou, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom thou persecutest. It is hard for thee to kick against the pricks. And he, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what wilt thou have me do? And the Lord said unto him, Arise and go into the city, and it shall be told thee what thou must do. Paul is confronted here by the resurrected Jesus. God literally revealed His Son in Paul by revealing His Son physically to Paul. Now, Paul was serving the law. But he truly believed he was serving God by serving the law. He was serving with a genuine heart as he sought to persecute believers a heart that believed he was serving God. So when God revealed Christ to him, he readily accepted him as the Lord and immediately asked Jesus, what would you have me do? Well, Jesus had shined in a bright light to Paul so that Paul had been blinded by this light. And Jesus sent Paul to Damascus and sent him to a man named Ananias. And Ananias restored his sight in the name of Jesus. And you can imagine, if you continue reading the passage, you'll find that Ananias was greatly concerned. 
God tells Ananias, I'm going to send you a guy and his name is Saul. And Ananias says, you mean that Saul that wants to kill me? Yeah, that's him. I want you to go, I want you to receive him because he's now a servant of the living God. And so Ananias obeys and he takes him in and he, he gives him back his sight. And um, the scriptures tell us in verses uh, 18 through 20, and immediately there fell from his eyes as it had been scales. This is from Saul. And he received sight forthwith and arose and was baptized. And when he had received meat, he was strengthened. Then was Saul certain days with the disciples which were at Damascus and straightway he preached Christ in the synagogues that he is the Son of God. So Saul did spend an unknown amount of time in Damascus. We, we believe that it was a very short amount of time and we'll discuss why in just a moment. Paul received his sight again and even before eating any food, okay? He gets saved on the road to Damascus. He goes into Damascus. He talks with Ananias. Ananias prays for him. He receives his sight and even before getting any food, he says, baptize me. I want to associate with Christ. I want to associate with Christians. I want to associate with the church of Christ, baptize me. And so he gets baptized and then he eats. And after receiving meat, the scriptures say he was strengthened and he was ready to go. And he did spend some time, likely a very short amount of time, according to Galatians, attempting to preach Christ in the synagogues of Damascus. It was not long, however, until Paul left Damascus. And where he went when he left Damascus is filled in by the teaching in Galatians. Um, Paul said, back in Galatians chapter um, 1, verses 15 through 17, he says, when he received Christ, he says, immediately I conferred not with flesh and blood, neither went I up to Jerusalem to them which were apostles before me, but I went into Arabia and returned again into Damascus. Paul says he didn't confer with flesh and blood about the gospel. He receives Christ, he gets baptized, he eats, and he tries to preach in the synagogues. And my thought is it didn't go very well for him. And so he says immediately, I conferred not with flesh and blood. He says, I didn't go into Jerusalem, but he says, I went into Arabia. Now, there wasn't a lot in Arabia at that time. It was a desert. And so he went into this place, Arabia, and the scriptures tell us, he tells us that he then returned unto Damascus. When we combine Paul's time in Arabia with his statement in verse 12 that he was taught doctrine directly from Jesus Christ, we infer that this time that Paul spent in Arabia was time where he was learning from Christ himself doctrine. And that's where we get this idea that Paul learned from Christ himself in Arabia doctrine. Because Paul says he learned from Christ himself in verse 5. He says that he didn't confer with flesh and blood, but immediately went to Arabia in verse 17. And after this, the scriptures tell us that Paul came back to Damascus. That's what he says here in verse 17. He went into Arabia and then he returned again into Damascus. And in order to fill in some of these gaps here, We'll pick up back in Acts, and it'll be on the screen, verse 22. The scriptures tell us, But Saul increased the more in strength, and confounded the Jews which dwelt at Damascus, proving that this is very Christ. So by verse 22, which is only three verses after um, Paul begins preaching in Damascus, the scriptures tell us he was very successful. 
But Paul says in Galatians that when he got saved, he didn't confer with flesh and blood about the gospel. He went into Arabia and he was taught by Jesus Christ. And so it's likely that he got saved, he went to Damascus, he got baptized, he received his vision, he spent a very short amount of time there, perhaps tried to preach the gospel just a little bit, didn't work out well for him. Acts doesn't tell, the book of Acts doesn't tell us he went to Arabia, but Galatians does. So we know he left, he left Galatia, uh, or he, he left Damascus, excuse me, he went to Arabia, he spent some time, presumably learning from Christ, comes back to Damascus, and we find that as he increased more in strength, that's probably his time in Arabia, he began confronting the Jews and began to become very successful at confronting Jews and proving that Jesus is the Christ. I hope all of that timeline kind of made sense to you. Picking back up with Galatians in verses 18 and 19, notice what Paul then says. He says, Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to see Peter and abode with him 15 days. But other of the apostles saw I none, save James, the Lord's brother. So Paul says three years. Three years, and in the context of Galatians, it's clearly three years since his conversion, is when he left Damascus. Somewhere within that three years, he was in Arabia. How long was he actually in Arabia? People say he spent three years in the desert learning from Christ. It probably wasn't three years in the desert learning from Christ because he spent three years from conversion to when he left Damascus. And we know he spent enough time in Damascus to make him a, a big enemy of the Jews <laughs> so, um, and confounding the Jews in their own religion. So there was some time in Damascus. There was some time in Arabia. The time in Arabia was learning from Christ. The time in Damascus was, was spending time with the believers and um, preaching Christ in the synagogues. And after three years, he went to Jerusalem. And it says that he spent only 15 days, excuse me, 15 days there. And he met only with Peter and with James. Now, Peter, of course, would have been the chiefest of the apostles as far as a representative of Jesus to the church. And James was the head, the leader of the Jerusalem church. We might say the head elder of the Jerusalem church. He says those are the only two apostles he conferred with. I'm going to jump back to Acts 9 again so that you can see how this is told in Acts 9. We, we now find ourselves in verses 26 through 28 and the scriptures tell us this. When Saul was come to Jerusalem, he essayed to join himself to the disciples. So this is Saul, three years in Damascus. Now he comes to Jerusalem and he wants to join himself to the disciples. But they were all afraid of him <laughs> and believed not that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him, good old Barnabas, and brought him to the apostles and declared unto them how he had seen the Lord in the way and that he had spoken to him and how he had preached boldly at Damascus in the name of Jesus. And he was with them coming in and going out at Jerusalem. So Paul comes to Jerusalem and he says, I want to I join myself to the church. And the people say, uh-uh. Absolutely not. You're Saul of Tarsus. We're not going to trust you. Except for an, a guy named Barnabas. Barnabas, uh, the, the name um, literally means son of consolation. He is a, a man that we see as we walk through the book of Acts, is a great, man of great mercy and love. He takes Saul under wing and he says, let's go talk to the, the apostles. And we know from Galatians that he only ended up talking to two of them, right? 
Peter, and James. Paul specifically says, I saw none of the other apostles but Peter and James. So when it says in, in Acts 9 that he was brought to the apostles, that's Peter and James. Couldn't have been any others because Paul said he talked to none others. And so he goes to the uh, uh, apostles and the apostles vet him a little bit to make sure that he was actually a disciple and he wasn't some sleeper cell for the Jewish religion, for the Sanhedrin, and that he had genuinely been converted. When Barnabas says, look at this man's testimony, and by the way, he's been in Damascus. And in Damascus, he was boldly preaching Jesus Christ in the face of Jewish opposition. And they trusted him. But he was only there for 15 days, and that's because they wanted to kill him. The Jews wanted to kill him. And this was it for Paul's interaction with the apostles for that time. Paul was not a product of the apostles. Paul had not spent years under their influence. All of this was said by Paul with the intent that these Galatian believers would understand that he was not just some product of the system or some robot minister. He learned what he learned from Christ apart from any influence of the, even the established Christian church of the day. And after those 15 days in Jerusalem, Paul then fills in the gaps in Galatians 1, verses 20 through 24. He says this, Now the things which I write unto you, behold, before God I lie not. Afterwards, that's after Jerusalem, he says, I came into the regions of Syria and Sicilia and was unknown by face to the churches of Judea, which were in Christ, but they had heard only that he which persecuted us in time past now preacheth the faith which once he destroyed and they glorified God in me. So Paul spent almost no time in Jerusalem. He was not known to the churches of Judea except by reputation alone that the man who once destroyed the church now is preaching the gospel of Christ. To fill in the gaps of this summary that Paul gives in Galatians. Uh, the Bible tells us in Acts chapter 9, verse 30, that the leaders of Jerusalem, having heard of Paul's return and wanting to kill him, send him to Caesarea and eventually send him to Tarsus. And as far as we know, Paul remains living in Tarsus until Barnabas seeks him out in Acts eleven twenty-five to go to Antioch and to be commissioned for that first missionary journey, the one that would go to Galatia. It's believed that Paul was converted around 37 AD, some five years after the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Paul spent three years in Damascus and Arabia. Then he spent 15 days in Jerusalem. And his journey with Barnabas did not begin until somewhere around 45 AD, which tells us that those three years in, uh, in Damascus were from 37 AD to 40 AD. And then Saul was sent to Tarsus, which means Saul probably spent about five years in Tarsus before he began his public ministry. And from the time he got saved to the time he started his first missionary journey was actually something like seven years. I don't know about you, but um, whenever I think about that, that's a little bit encouraging to me. You know, our church has been around for five years. I've been here for four years. Sometimes we just want to get up and go and think that everything's supposed to happen like this, one right after another. And when we look at Paul, it was seven years from the time he got saved to when his public 
travel ministry that he's very famous for. You know, the thing that, that we read about in the book of Acts took seven years before he was there from his conversion. It took seven years for him to get to the point where the Lord saw fit to commission him to go into the Gentile nations. So let's remember to be patient. To be patient with ourselves and to be patient with God. Sometimes it takes time for God to prepare us for what he has for us. And it sure did, sure did for Paul. But notice this last phrase. This last phrase of verse 24. Because this is what ties all of what Paul has said to the, to the presentation of the gospel. Paul stated in verse 10 that his job was not to persuade men, not to please men. It was to give the gospel. Paul's life reflected the reality that he was not a religious insider. And in fact, he had every reason as a Judaizing Pharisee not to preach the gospel by grace alone. I mean, if he, if he could preach the gospel of Jesus Christ plus the law, if he could preach that gospel that says, yes, Jesus died for our sins according to the Scripture, He was buried and rose again according to the Scripture, and if you get circumcised, you'll be saved. Or if you get baptized, you'll be saved. If he could have preached that, you realize he could have been tops in, the, in, in that kind of a religious system because he was the Pharisee of the Pharisees, the circumcised of the eighth day, the tribe of Benjamin. He was the zealous man for the law. He knew the law. No doubt he'd memorized the entire Pentateuch. No doubt he had memorized vast portions of the Old Testament. He was a Pharisee. He sat at the feet of Gamaliel. Look up that word sometime. Find out who Gamaliel was. Gamaliel was an incredibly influential Pharisee. And Paul sat and learned from him. Paul had everything going for him. But he didn't preach a legalistic gospel. He didn't add to the gospel because that isn't the gospel. And Paul wasn't interested in himself. He was interested in the glory of God. Paul's loyalties weren't about personal advantage. I'm going to preach the gospel for personal advantage. I'm going to preach the gospel to get a bunch of conversion cards, to get a bunch of people baptized, to get a bunch of people in the seat of my church. He didn't preach the gospel for that reason. He didn't preach the gospel for personal glory so I can become number one on the bestseller list. He lived to glorify God before men. And if he lives to glorify God before men, then he's not going to want to change the gospel because the gospel is what brings glory to God. And when we change the gospel, we change from the glory of God to the glory of man because we've perverted the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul had to preach the gospel in its purity because that is the message that glorifies God. Just one point as we close this evening. And that point is this. The pure gospel, the true gospel, has the power to save apart from any persuasion or pleasing people. Now, as I say this, let me first remind you that the church of God plays a vital role in the salvation of souls. Paul says this in Romans 10, verses 13 and 14. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. 
How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And here it is. How shall they hear without a preacher? Salvation is rooted in personal belief in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we'll come back to this in a moment. But Paul states here that men can't call upon one in whom they have not believed. Men must first come to a point of belief before they can express that belief. And in order to believe in Jesus, men must first come to a place where they hear the gospel, where they hear that Jesus died for their sins and rose again the third day. And in order for them to hear, there must be a preacher. You say, well, preacher, isn't that you? No, I'm a pastor. The word preacher there is to herald, to proclaim. There must be someone proclaiming the gospel. The word preacher is not really the word that means the guy that stands behind the pulpit and the guy that you support. And yes, that's what I do. I preach the gospel. That's a part of my commission as a pastor. But it's a part of your commission as a Christian and my commission as a Christian to preach the gospel, to herald the gospel, to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that means that we as Christ's church have a role to play. And according to Paul, it's vital because if there's no preacher then they can't hear. When we proclaim the gospel, the gospel gets into the ears of people. And when the gospel gets into the ears of people, there's an opportunity for them to believe it. And when they believe it, they might just accept it. And if they accept it, then they'll be in heaven. But it starts with hearing. And that starts with proclaiming. So, that being said, Though you play an important role in the gospel, which should not be minimized, I'm not here to tell you you don't need to play a role because you do. You need to be telling people of Christ. You can't make anyone hear. You can't make anyone believe. You can't make anyone accept. So what does that mean? That means in this process of declaring, hearing, believing, and accepting, your part can only be the telling. You have no power but to tell. Parents, we know how hard it is sometimes to get our children to hear, right? We, we can tell, but between telling and hearing, that can be a difficult step, can't it? This evening in the, in the vehicle, just as we were getting out of the car to come to church this evening, one of my daughters was not hearing me well. And I was saying things, and mom was saying things, and daughter was not hearing us. And we had to stop her and say, you need to look into my eyes and listen. And you know what? She looked into my eyes, and then her eyes went, whoop. I said, no, 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 look at me. And, whoop. and then she looked at me, and her eyes went, whoop. And it was just, it wasn't working. See, there's only so much we can do to get somebody to hear us. And even if it's going into their ears and you can say, repeat after me, and even though they might be able to repeat it after you, that doesn't mean it's actually sinking in, does it? There's only so much we can do. And the gospel doesn't place upon us the burden of getting people to hear us. It places upon us the burden of telling. God, 
is the one that brings the hearing. God is the one that helps men believe and accept. And all of that is through the convicting work of the Holy Spirit. Romans chapter 1, verse 16 says this, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. The gospel of Jesus Christ is the power of God unto salvation. When you proclaim the true gospel, the pure gospel, the gospel itself has the power to make men hear. The gospel itself has the power to lead men from hearing into belief. The gospel itself has the power to compel the hearer into acceptance. Your job, and by extension your responsibility, while vital, ends at the telling. When you have told someone the gospel, you have done that which God has asked you to do. Now, maybe you don't just need to tell them once. Maybe you need to tell them 5, 6, 10, 15, 150 times. But it's your job to tell. You can't make them hear. And if you change the gospel in order to try to by shortcut this process to persuade men, you're effectively cutting off the power of God from the process and short-circuiting the gospel in order to persuade men. You're short-circuiting the gospel's power to persuade by going off on your own direction. You don't need to change the gospel to please men. And in fact, if you change the gospel to please men, what you're doing is you are substituting your capacity to please men with the gospel's capacity to convince men. And you are short-circuiting the gospel's power to lead men into the pleasure of Christ by your attempt to lead them into pleasure on your own. The power of God is in the gospel. Men need to know that they're sinners separated from God through unbelief. Then men need to hear the gospel that Christ died for their sins, He was buried and He rose again the third day. And because Christ lives, we can have eternal life through His name. And if the gospel is the power of God, then the gospel is the most important aspect of our evangelistic efforts. It's not how, how much of a smooth talker we are. It's not how convincing we can be. It's not about our, our deep knowledge of theological concepts, our ability to debunk any error and every error that's out there. The Bible doesn't say that debunking Error is the power of God unto salvation. The Bible doesn't say your charismatic personality is the power of God unto salvation. The Bible doesn't say even your ability to express yourself is the power of God unto salvation. The Bible doesn't say your self-confidence is the power of God unto salvation. The Bible says the gospel of Jesus Christ is the power of God unto salvation. And that's what we're asked to tell the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel is the operative, operative aspect of all of our evangelistic efforts. To change the gospel is to sabotage the gospel. To change the gospel is to lead others into error and to lead many into the dangers of hellfire. We don't need to become persuasive. We just need to tell the truth. We don't need to please men. We just need to tell the truth. 
And the rest? Well, the rest of that, the part about men coming to know Christ as their Savior, men being convicted, men believing, men hearing, men accepting, well, that's the Gospel's job. And we can leave that in the very capable hands of the Almighty God. Let's close in prayer.